All right, today we are in John chapter 20, beginning around verse 21, and then we're going to go to the end of the book. So we'll finish off our series this morning, Captivated by Jesus. We've been in this for several months now, um, and so now we've come to the end, and we're going to look at why do you need to be captivated by Jesus to follow Jesus, right? Because that's what it's all about, right? It's about us following Jesus. But as I said when we began, I could tell you to follow Jesus. I could tell you to go out and, and witness to people. I can tell you to live your life for Christ. But unless you are captivated by Him, you're not going to do it. And so we're going to look at that in more detail this morning as we finish out the book. So hopefully you found your place. Now I'm going to begin reading in verse 19. And I'm not going to read, you know, both chapters here, but, but I'll read down for a bit here. So beginning in verse 19 of chapter 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hand the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We'll stop there for now. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together as the church to open your word, to hear from it, God. And today, as we do that, would you captivate us? Would you captivate us as we finish out our series this morning, Captivated by Jesus? Help us to see why we should be captivated by him and why we need to be captivated by him. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure there are those things that you don't like to do. Maybe it's washing the dishes or folding the laundry or mowing the grass or doing homework or taking a test or working out. I'm sure that, that one of those things resonates with you. We all have those things that, that, that we don't like to do. And while several of the things I just listed out rank pretty high on my I don't like to do it list, there's, there's one thing that I really don't like to do, and that is driving. I hate to drive. I hate to drive for any length of time, especially through the Metroplex here in DFW. 
I can't stand the unknown of how long it's going to take me to drive through Dallas. You know, is, is there, is there going to be a wreck? Uh, will there be road work? Who else is going to be on the road? How many people are there going to be? Am I going to get behind that guy? And you all know who that guy is, right? I, I just, I can't stand not knowing. I, I hate the unknown. And to help with the unknown, I don't drive anywhere in the Metroplex without Google Maps routing me there. It doesn't matter if I know where I'm going. It doesn't matter if I've taken that route a thousand times before. I turn on Google Maps and it has literally saved me hours and hours and hours of sitting in traffic as it has routed me around road work and closures and backups and wrecks. Now, I don't mean for this to be an ad for Google Maps, but, but if you hate driving as much as I do and you hate sitting in traffic and you, and you hate the unknown, I would certainly encourage you to download that map and let it guide you to your next destination. Now, knowing that I hate driving, you might be shocked to know that, that I once drove from Atlanta, Georgia, all the way to Laredo, Texas. And you're probably wondering, well, why? I mean, it's a 20-hour trip. And not only did I, did I drive there with a couple buddies, but, and we switched off, but, but I did most of the driving for this trip. And you're probably wondering why. I mean, if you hate driving so much, why did you drive 20 hours? Why didn't you just fly? And why did you do most of the driving? Why didn't you do most of, of the riding? Well, not only did I make a drive to Laredo, Texas, but then I boarded a bus to Monterey, Mexico. And then once I got to Monterey, I boarded a school bus to Hidalgo, Mexico. And then once I got to Hidalgo, I got in a taxi and I went up to this place called El Potrero Chico, which is the sport climbing capital of Mexico and the premier winter destination for rock climbing in all of North America. In total, this trip took 27 hours for me to get there. Quite a long way for somebody who hates driving. Now, the next year I went, I, I flew uh, because it was a long drive. But, but why? You know, why would I make such a drive? Well, I drove all that way because I was captivated by the idea of, of climbing at, at one of the best places in all of North America for the wintertime. I was drawn and I was, I was captivated because of the countless conversations that I had had with the folks at the climbing wall, the countless pictures that they had showed me and how much they had talked up this trip because many of them had gone down there in recent years. I was captivated by the idea of climbing at the best place in all of North America. And I have to say, it was worth it. I spent two weeks there with my friends from college, climbing every single day, and it was an amazing trip. You see, if something captivates you, you will do almost anything, anything despite the cost and the difficulty that it might take to do that. And the same must be true when it comes to following Jesus. If we are captivated by Jesus, we aren't, if we're not captivated by Jesus, excuse me, we're not going to follow Jesus. Sure, we might, we might dabble with Jesus here and there, right? We might, we might invite Jesus into a portion of our life, especially if, if that, that, that part makes us feel good, right? We all like the feel-good Jesus, the one who gives us these warm and fuzzies, and we're like, man, Jesus is, is amazing, right? We want to invite Jesus into that portion of our life, but that, that isn't following Jesus. Following Jesus, as we're going to see, is giving him our all. It's not holding anything back. 
It's not saying, Jesus, you can have my, my private life, but, but when it comes to my public life, you can't, you can't have my public life. It's not saying, Jesus, you can have everything but my finances or my relationships or my business or my career or my schooling. There is no but. There are no exceptions when it comes to following Jesus at all. This is why Jesus tells us that we must count the cost before we come and follow Jesus. He expects us to give our all to him. And if we aren't captivated by Jesus, we aren't gonna follow Jesus in that way. And why is that? Why do you need to be captivated by Jesus to follow Jesus? Why is it, what is it that he is actually asking us to do? We see he's asking us to give us his all, but, but what, what specifically is he asking us to do? What is the cost that is associated with following Jesus? Well, we must be captivated by Jesus to follow Jesus because Jesus sends us out on mission. You know, Jesus appears to his disciples a total of three times as, as the Gospel of John ends. And Jesus' first appearance occurs with the disciples. They're, they're huddled up in a room for fear of the Jews. They, they just have, have seen Jesus uh, put on the sham of a trial. And then he was crucified at the hands of the Romans. And so for fear of the Jews, we're told there in the, the second half of verse 19, the disciples were hiding out of sight behind a locked door. And it's not like the Roman soldiers couldn't come in there and just kick the door open and, and take them out. I mean, certainly could, could do that if they wanted to. But they were out of sight and hopefully out of mind. And so they thought that they were safe. Now, out of nowhere, we're told there at the end of verse 19, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And Jesus' last phrase, peace be with you, is, is not only meant to, to calm the disciples. I mean, I mean, could you imagine? Could you imagine being the disciples? You're, you're huddled up in this room. You are, you are afraid of, of someone coming in there, ripping you out, turning you into the Romans so that they then crucify you as well. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, the one that you just saw die on a on a on a cross, placed in a, in a tomb. And some of you have went and you've seen that the tomb is empty. You see this man come and, and walk into the room and stand there right in front of you. And it's not like Jesus knocked on the door with this secret knock that him and his disciples, you know, put together beforehand. And, and they look through the peephole and they're like, oh, that's Jesus, right? That's the knock. That's Jesus. Let's, let's let him in. No, that's not what happened at all. The door was locked. They're in there fearful, and here's Jesus. He just appears in front of them. I mean, I would imagine that that would startle you as much as it probably startled them as well. And to calm them down, Jesus says, peace be with you. I'm not, I'm not here to hurt you. I bring peace. And then to prove that it was him, we learn in verse 20 that when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, while on the one hand, the, the phrase, peace be with you, is, is meant to calm these startled disciples, it is also a, a highly theological statement. Here's what one commentator says. Jesus' shalom on Easter evening is the complement of it is finished on the cross. For the peace of reconciliation and life from God is now imparted. 
And so Jesus' cross work, the very work that he points them to as he enters the room, as he shows them his, his hands and he shows them his pierced side, provides peace and reconciliation with the Father. Consider what Paul says in Romans 5.1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul uses the same Greek word for peace here in his letter to the Romans as John does in his gospel here in this verse. And what this tells us is that Jesus provides us with peace. And peace refers to a, a state of, of tranquility. It refers to harmony. It, it means there is no war. You see, before we believed in Jesus, we existed as enemies of God. We were at war with God. And we often don't want to think about that, that our non-believing friends are at war with God, but, but our non-believing friends are at war with God. They are, they are seeking to take his throne from him so that they can sit on that throne. See, we were at war with God. There was no peace between us and God at all. But Jesus, through his life and his death and, and his resurrection, Jesus comes and Jesus provides us with peace. He takes the wrath that is reserved for those who are God's enemies and he takes it on himself there on the cross and he pays the price, which is death. Amen. And those who connect themselves to Jesus through belief no longer are at odds with God. They are no longer enemies of God. They experience peace. And no one or nothing else can provide us the peace that Jesus provides us, the peace of God, the peace that we desire. Isaiah hits on this topic in, in chapter 59 of, of the book after his name. Isaiah knew the promise God made to Abraham that a seed would come from him that would bring blessing to the earth and the promise that he made to, to David that, that a king would come who would rule with justice and, and equity and who would sit on his throne forever and ever and ever. But as Isaiah looks back through the history of Israel, he, he doesn't see anyone who is allowing them to be a blessing to the nations. He doesn't see any king who rules in the way that, that God had promised to King David. As leaders and kings came and went, the one who would lead Israel to be a, a blessing to the nations and the king who would sit on the ether, eternal throne ruling in righteousness, they were nowhere to be found at all. And since no man was found for centuries and centuries and centuries, God reveals through the prophet Isaiah that he is literally going to take matters into his own hands to bring us with salvation. In Isaiah 59, 16, the, the scripture that we read this morning, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld it. And then in verse 20 and on into chapter 60, and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Arise, shine, for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth 
and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and the nation shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Who is the fulfillment of this prophecy? Who is the one who will cause man to shine brightly for the Lord to the nations, to be a blessing to the nations as we are originally designed to be? What's well, Jesus? Jesus is that one. God sent Jesus. The Father sent Jesus. He is God incarnate who has come so that we might experience peace our relationship with the Father, so that the Father's wrath would not be poured out on us, but it would, was poured out on Jesus in our place. He is the one who provides us with peace. And if, if we're in Christ, we can arise and, and we can shine, and the glory of the Lord has, has risen upon us. We no longer have to fear drinking the cup of wrath. Jesus has drank that for us. Jesus provides us with peace. He has come to lead us into righteousness so that we might shine as lights to the nations. This was the very reason that Jesus was sent. To repair our relationship with the Father and to allow us to accomplish our God-given purpose to bring God glory as we shine as lights of blessing to the nations. You know, it's just the end of August, but... But, but reading about, thinking about shining as lights this week as I've prepared this sermon has got me thinking about Christmas. At Christmas time, people would, would typically put lights on their house. And, and growing up, I would, we would put lights on, on our house as well. Nothing, nothing crazy, nothing out of the ordinary, just, just a little string that kind of went around the, the house to outline it. And, and if, if we were really feeling adventurous that year, we might grab one of those nets, you know, that has the lights on it, and, and we might throw that over our hedges in the front yard. But that was really it. Most of the people that we knew, most of the people in our neighborhood as I was growing up as a kid, they, they, did, the same, they did the same thing. But, but there was always this one family in Savannah who went over the top every single year. Uh, they were the Roddenberries. Every year they would cover their house, they would cover their yard in Christmas lights. Every year, the newspaper would come out and they would take pictures of it and they would show all of the cars that were coming by. And, and we would be one of those cars that, that drove by their house every single year just to kind of see what, what is it that the Roddenberries are doing this year. And I'm sure if people were up in space, they'd be able to see their house just shining so brightly, right? Um, it, it was a sight to be seen. It was something that we looked forward to every single year year. They were the talk of Savannah. Everybody knew who they were. Most folks had, had driven by their house at least once. And so if you went back to, to my you know, high school days and you asked some of our friends, you know the Roddenberries, people would say, yeah, we know who, we know who the Roddenberries were. They were. Everybody knew who they were. And just as the lights the Roddenberries placed in their front yard made them known, we are to make God known as we shine as lights of blessing to the nations for him. Look at the text in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You see, we are sent to call others to experience peace and to shine as lights of glory for God, just as Jesus was sent to us. And our mission to make disciples should, should always be 
gospel-centered. Not only should we proclaim the gospel, but, but we are also thrust out on mission because of the gospel and its effect on our life. Having experienced the peace and reconciled relationship with the Father, we should want other people to experience the same thing. Having been captivated by Jesus, we should want other people to be captivated by Jesus too. And that's really what it looks like for us to, to live life on mission or what it takes for us to live life on mission for Jesus every single day. Life captivated by Jesus. A life captivated by the gospel. And I'm not just talking about going out, you know, every now and again and, and talking to people about Jesus, right? Or us putting on some sort of event. I'm talking about us actually living as a missionary each and every single day. Us seeking to get to know people and build relationships with them so that we might speak the gospel into their lives, right? We play this IMB video this morning. That's what they do. You know, these folks, they move to another country and they, they, they live in this other country in such a way that every single day, everywhere that they go, they are seeking to build relationships with people, to get to know people so that they might tell them about Jesus, so they might invite them to study the Bible with them, so that they might win the lost to Christ. That's how we've got to think of ourselves, not just, you know, one thing that we go do here and there, but what are we doing every single day? We talk about being the church every day, everywhere. That's, that's what it looks like. For us to be on mission for Jesus requires us to be the church every day, everywhere. And I could tell you a thousand times that you are supposed to live your life on mission for Jesus. I can preach sermons that make you feel so bad about not doing that. And you may go and do that for a day or two. But unless you are truly captivated by Jesus, unless the gospel has truly captivated your life, you're not going to do that every day. That's not going to be the heartbeat of your life. That's not going to be what you seek to do as, to live as a missionary every single day for Jesus. And so we must consider the gospel. I mean, think about, think about it. Think about how amazing it is that, that God has worked in time and space so that our relationship with God could be repaired. God didn't just work distantly, but God worked intimately. As we read through Isaiah 59, God actually came as we saw in, in John chapter 1. Right? God incarnate, the Word became flesh, and He came and He lived among us, and He spilt His blood for us. Think about how amazing that is. That God would do that. No other God, no other religion proclaims that, that God comes and sacrifices himself for the people and then draws those people to himself so that they would believe in him. No other religion claims that. Christianity does. That should captivate us. Because that is amazing that God would do that. And what should captivate you even more is that we're not sent on mission alone. Look at verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. We are given the Spirit who accompanies us on our mission. God not only comes, God not only dies, God not only saves us, but then God empowers us for our mission. He goes with us as we go out to live as missionaries each and every single day. Amen. And it's necessary that we be empowered because our mission is one of forgiveness. Look at verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you will withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now you read that and you're like, whoa, what's he talking about? Now this is why it's important 
that we read the Old Testament. This is why it's important we have an understanding of, of what, what has taken place in the Old Testament. As you consider this, this is priestly language. You know, in the Old Testament times, the, the priests, they would be stationed at the front of the temple by the altar. And, and when people sinned, they would, they would bring a sacrifice. And this happened every single day. They would bring a sacrifice and they would stand in line because there were all kind of other people in, in the nation who sinned. And they were coming to the temple to, to bring their sacrifice to. And when it was your turn, you got up there, the priest would say, well, what did, what did you do? What's your sin? You would tell him. He would place your animal on the altar. You would, you would place your hand on its head. And then he would slit its throat as your hand was there. It died in your place. That's how heinous our sin is. Something has to die in our place. And that's what would take place. And then the priest, after he did that, after the, this animal was killed and the sacrifice was given, the priest would then say, you are forgiven of your sins. In a similar way, not, not exactly, but, but in a similar way, we act, we act as priests. Right? Those who, who come and profess belief in Jesus, that, that he is a sacrificial lamb who has died on our behalf, have forgiveness pronounced upon them. But in order for forgiveness to be extended, you must believe that, that Christ alone provides you a repaired relationship with the Father. You must repent of your sins, admitting that you have forsaken God's way of doing things for your own way. And having repented, you, you are now to, to turn and you are to follow Jesus, allowing him to lead and to guide you according to his wisdom, wisdom that is found right here in his word. Those who do that in our presence, we, we act as, as priests pronouncing forgiveness on them. This is why it's important that, that we hear people's testimony. This is why it's important people are able to actually articulate the gospel. We are acting as priests who pronounce forgiveness on another based on what they're professing to be true about Jesus. We can't take that for granted. When someone says that they believe in Jesus, you know, we, we have to know, what do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the gospel? There are all kinds of false narratives out there. There are all kinds of, of false gospels out there. For somebody just to say, yeah, I believe in Jesus or, or I believe the gospel, what, what do they believe? What gospel are they, are they adhering to? We need to hear their testimony. We need to hear them profess faith in Christ alone for their sins alone and to repent of their sins. And then we may pronounce forgiveness on them. See, this is what he's saying as we go out on mission. We are telling them about Jesus and they are responding to that message in belief and trust and repentance and forgiveness is extended to them. And so our mission must be gospel-centered. We must proclaim the gospel and we must allow the gospel to thrust us out on mission. You see, as we head out on mission, we should move forward as, as captivated, spirit-empowered priests who are proclaiming and pronouncing forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. This is the mission that Jesus sends us on. We must be captivated by him before we're going to go on that mission. As we're captivated by Jesus and follow him on mission, we must trust him to provide. And this is the point that John makes of this fishing story at the beginning of verse 21. 
You know, it, it seems Jesus is, is meeting with his disciples in, in the upper room. His, his conversation that he has with Thomas that we read during the, the opening there, uh, it, it emboldens them. They, they are then, now they're not huddled up in this room any longer. They are now back to work. They're out fishing, doing business. And the disciples had been out fishing all night and in the morning just before they were about to come in. They haven't caught anything. Jesus appears on the beach. They don't know that it's Jesus at this point, but, but Jesus appears on the beach. This man, you know, and he, and, he, and he heralds to them. He yells to them, hey, have you, have you tried the other side of, of the boat? And it's like, dude, we've been out here fishing all night, man. Like, we've tried both sides of the boat multiple times. We, we've done all that we can to try to find some fish out here, but we haven't been able to do it. But they say, you know, well, I, let's try it. Well, what do you got to lose? And they throw the net out, and it comes in full of fish. We're told 153 fish were in that net, and the net did not break, even though they had this huge haul that came in. You see, the disciples could have, could have said no, but they didn't. They listened to Jesus. And we see that Jesus provided for them. And Jesus provided, just as Jesus provided for them, Jesus will, will provide for us. And that's because Jesus provides for those who trust in him. That's what this, they had to do. Right? They had to trust that, that what he was saying, that there were going to be fish over here, was true. And they put the net in, and they pulled it out, and they caught fish. The same with us. We have to, we have to trust that, that Jesus will provide. Jesus will provide for us physically, as we see here, as we're out on mission for him. But Jesus will also make our mission effective as we go out fishing for men. Right? Jesus has provided us with the Spirit who goes with us. And the Spirit draws people to the Father as we proclaim the gospel to them. And so in these ways... We have to trust that Jesus will provide. And Jesus will provide. It doesn't mean that life is always going to be rosy. It doesn't mean that, that, that things are going to be perfect. It doesn't mean that we're going to have every single thing that we want just because we are living life on mission for Jesus, right? Oftentimes the opposite is the truth. Things are taken from us. Things are destroyed. We are physically assaulted or verbally abused. But Jesus will provide for us as long as we are alive. He will provide for our needs and he will make our mission effective. Not only are we to seek to captivate others with the gospel, but we are to care for Jesus's followers. In verse 15 through 17, Jesus and Peter, they, they had this exchange where, where Jesus is seeking to restore Peter to his position. After he denied Jesus three times in order to save himself. And in these verses, Jesus asks Peter three times, Do you love me? And Jesus' three questions mirror Peter's three denials. So look at the text beginning in verse 15. We're in chapter 21 now. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to them, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to me, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to them, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? 
Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Here Jesus asks Peter if he loves him. Three times Jesus asks. Three times Peter says yes. And through this exchange, Peter is being restored back to his position. But notice, you know, what he is asking. Do you, do you love me? And Peter is saying, yes, I, I love you. And, and at that command, he is telling him to do something. Now, some have tried to make some difference out of the two Greek words that occur here, right? I mean, there are multiple Greek words for love. You don't see that in our English translation. But, but here, two words are used. Jesus uses agape and Peter uses phileo. Many people try to make something out of that, but but a surface reading is is all that that will do. You see, when when you dig down into it, when you consider the context and what this word phileo means, the the Greek word for for love that Peter uses here, it's an appropriate usage. Phileo refers to love and affection for someone or something based on association. In other words, what Peter is saying then is that that he's captivated by Jesus. He loves Jesus more than anything else. I am captivated by you. My affections for you are are greater than than anything else and anyone else. This has drawn him to Jesus. And out of this relationship that he has with Jesus... He is going to tend his sheep. He's going to care for his sheep. He's going to feed his sheep. And that tells us that that caring for others who are followers of Jesus must be born out of us being captivated by Jesus. Jesus' love for us should not only draw us to him, but it should also propel us out to others who are believers in Christ and even out further to those who are not believers in Christ. But in this instance, we're looking at those who are believers. And I don't believe Jesus is just talking to pastors here. Pastors aren't the only ones who are sent out on mission for Jesus. Pastors aren't the only ones who should be captivated by and and love Jesus. Pastors aren't the only ones who should be empowered for mission by the Spirit. Everyone is commissioned to go and live as missionaries for Jesus. Everyone who is a believer receives the Spirit and is empowered for mission. Often people say, I I can't, I can't do it. I can't, no, you can do it. You need some training, but you also have power. You have the Holy Spirit who is empowering you to witness to other people, to build relationships with other people. You have the Spirit who is bringing other people into your life so that you might... Build a relationship with them and begin to speak the truth of the gospel into their life. Everyone should be captivated by Jesus. Thus, everyone should seek to care for their fellow believers in Christ. When Jesus captivates us, we will not only live life on mission for him and trust that he will provide for us, but we will also care for one another. And lastly, we learn that we must be captivated by Jesus to follow Jesus. Because we are to follow him despite the cost. And so we will care, we will trust, we will be sent out on mission. We're empowered by the Spirit. But there's a cost. 
And we see that cost as we finish the Gospel of John. You, you think if someone's going to finish a book, you're going to finish it on a, on a high note. And it is somewhat on a high note, but, but in another sense, it's like, but Jesus is being real with us. He's saying, look, if you do this, if you follow me, if you go out on mission for me, you can trust me. I will empower you. You're going to have to care for others. I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that, but there is going to be a cost that is associated with this. Jesus reveals Peter's cost starting in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. What is the cost Peter has to face here? The cost is that he's going to be killed for following Jesus. He's not going to die of, of old age. He's not going to die of some complication. No, somebody is going to bind him and they're going to kill him. And Jesus knows that this is going to happen. He tells Peter, this is how you're going to die, man. He doesn't tell him when. He doesn't tell him exactly how. But this is going to happen. You are going to die if you follow me. And then Jesus says, follow me. Follow me. I know you're going to die for following me, but follow me. And Peter wanted to know if everyone who follows Jesus is going to die. He, he sees John walking and he says, well, what about this guy over here? I mean, what's going to happen to him? Is, is he going to die for following him or am I the only one? And look what Jesus says in verse 22. Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. In other words, don't worry about what's happened to this guy. If he never dies until I return, don't worry about it. The plan that I have for his life is not the plan that I have for your life. You worry about the plan that I have for your life. And the plan that I have for your life is for you to follow me despite the cost. And Peter did, did just that. Peter followed Jesus and Peter died. Peter died for following Jesus. According to church history, Peter was crucified following Jesus. Now, why did Peter follow Jesus? Peter had an out. Peter could have said, man, I'm going to die. And I'm not going to die in a peaceful way. I'm not going to die with my friends and family huddled around me, and I'm just going to go off. I'm not going to die in that way. Somebody is going to take me, they're going to bind me, and they're going to physically nail me to the cross. Why did Peter decide to follow Jesus? Well, it's because Jesus captivated Peter. And the only way that we are going to follow Jesus to the death like Peter did is if we are captivated by Jesus as well. We have to see Jesus as the most valuable thing ever if we're going to follow him in the way that he commands. And I believe that we've got good reason to see Jesus in that way. He is the eternal God who has given himself for us so that we might be forgiven of sins. He works through us to bring others to himself as he, we live life on mission for him, as well as he works through us to care for those who are his. Think about that. God works through us unholy sinners to accomplish his mission. 
God gives us the most valuable possession that he has, the, the thing that he spilt his blood for, to care for if we follow him. That is, it's amazing. It's amazing that God would do that, but, but God doesn't stop there. God also promises to be with us. God gives us his spirit who empowers us for mission, and then God provides for us as we seek to live on mission for him. All people who started as enemies of him, who want nothing to do with Jesus, who, want to, who are at war with him, not at peace, at war with him. And he draws us in so that we become that. Man, that is, that is amazing. And that should, that should captivate us. And Peter saw that. And Peter saw how amazing that is. Peter saw the value of that. Peter saw that, that eternal life with Jesus and representing Jesus now despite the cost was better than anything that this world could ever offer him. Whatever peace this world offered is nothing compared to the peace that Jesus offers us. And Peter saw that. And Peter said, I will follow you, knowing that one day, for following you and spreading the gospel, I will die. Are you captivated by Jesus so much so that you are willing to follow him despite the cost? Are you captivated by Jesus so much so that you will care for his people despite how they care for you? Are you captivated by Jesus so much so that you trust that he will provide for your needs? Are you captivated by Jesus so much so that you will spread the good news of the gospel as you live on mission for him each and every single day? Are you captivated by Jesus today? My hope is that through this series you have Come captivated by Jesus, that Jesus has, has drawn you in, that, that your affections for Jesus as we've walked through this gospel have, have been increased. He truly is the great I am, the never-changing God of the universe whose steadfast love drove him to come to earth as a man to die on our behalf so that we might experience eternal life. Jesus is the living water. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the lamb who has come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the resurrected Savior. He is our intercessory priest. Jesus is our Lord and our shepherd. Are you captivated by Jesus today? If you're following, if you are, then then follow him. Live according to his will. Give your all for Jesus. And today, if Jesus has captivated you for the first time, man, follow him as well. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ. Profess that. And receive forgiveness and the peace that only he can offer. If you want to talk more about Jesus, I'll be outside Afterwards, I'd love to talk with you more and share more with you about who he is. Today, you've heard the gospel. Today, you see the peace that Jesus can provide. Spread that gospel and believe in Jesus. Are you captivated by him today? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is. We thank you, God, that he has come and saved us. Lord, captivate us. Captivate us today as we finish this series. 
Captivate us by Jesus so that we will live on mission for Him despite the cost. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.